Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You'll also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another show. We're happy that you joined us. Uh, on this edition, we're going to have some fun with your questions. I'm going to answer a bunch of the questions that you have posed to me on Twitter. Uh, and we also will be talking with Stephen Espinoza, the uh, president of Showtime Sports. And uh, we're going to find out a little bit about his views about boxing returning and talk a little bit about um, his role as the leader of Showtime Sports, where I make my living. Uh, my host, um, co-host on this show, as you know, is Mr. Trip Mitchell. And Trip, uh, I managed to do this interview with Stephen Espinosa, which we already have in the can, and we'll be showing it on this uh, episode. And I didn't get fired in, after it, so that means it was successful. I would say you did a wonderful job, and uh, you didn't watch any Mike Wallace outtakes from 60 no. Minutes. You were not hard-hitting, but... It's right. There was not, Mike Wallace was not going to be the person I channeled for this interview, but, but <laughs> let me caution folks that it is intriguing. We didn't go just for softball stuff. We tried to get a lot of interesting uh, comments from Stephen about the, uh, uh, the, the way forward for boxing. Well, if you think about it, now with gates not being very important at all, TV partners are really going to be the reason that boxing moves forward quicker than virtually any other sport. So Stephen Espinoza's position at Showtime, he is one of the leaders in the boxing industry, and his guidance is going to be super important. Yeah, like uh, as with the other platforms and with uh, all the promoters, um, they are, they are going to help determine the way forward for the sport. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about that in just a few moments. And uh, some of that has to do with the questioning that we got. So why don't you fire away? Tell me some of the questions that we got from, uh, from our listeners. Okay. And uh, I did have to put the glasses on. I'm embarrassed yeah. to say that that happened. There you go. Good idea. Great first question, Josh P. Al, who was your favorite fighter as a kid? Yeah, that's an easy one to answer because I started watching boxing. Well, but I really had two, but one supplanted the other. When I was listening as a kid to, uh, I used to stay up late and listen to um, uh, the Ingemar Johansson, Floyd Patterson championship fights with a transistor radio near my ear when I was like eight or nine years old. And, uh, uh, and Floyd Patterson was a favorite of mine. Uh, but... The man that really became my favorite was the, the great Sugar Ray Robinson, who I saw fight on the Friday night fights um, and uh, watching with my dad. Uh, and it was, it's a bittersweet memory for me because my dad passed away just a couple years after that when I was about 12. But we used to watch the fights. And uh, when Sugar Ray Robinson came on, it was a very special evening. So Ray Robinson would be my all-time favorite fighter uh, to this day and certainly was as a youngster. And isn't that great that it's a memory that you shared with your dad? Yeah, that's part of the reason why it's so special. And, and you know, Don Dunphy, who announced all those great fights, who I later became friends with, and he was a mentor and a friend to me, uh, I got to, um, it, at the 25th or 50th Ring, Aniver uh, Ring Magazine anniversary, where they named the greatest of all different uh, genres of uh, fighters, et cetera, they named the greatest the boxing broadcaster, and it was Don Dunphy, he asked for me to introduce him and present him with the award. 
which was a huge honor. And when I did that that night, really the only thing missing for me was my dad, who would have been, you know, very proud to see that. That's fantastic. And, you know, what would be fun is to listen to fights now on the radio. And obviously it's never going to happen again. But the old days had to be wonderful. I did one fight on the radio, and you'll never guess who I did it with. Jim Rome. He was the play-by-play announcer. Uh, I think it was it was in Palm Springs, and I want to say it was uh, uh, Mildred Taylor was involved. I can't remember who the other fighter was. And we did a radio broadcast, so that was pretty crazy. Did he let you say anything? Yeah, oh, no, we're, Jim was good. We, were, we, did a nice, we had fun together. Okay. The next question is a great one. Um, this comes from Brad White. What fighter's legacy was the most damaged by their dubious act? Duran with the Nomas or Tyson hiding Holyfield's ear off? It's an excellent question, and here's my answer to that. Neither. Um, And I think I can, you know, maybe some people would disagree with me. You might, some other people might, but I actually think that both those fighters have completely, almost completely escaped ignominy from those two actions, which at the time were huge. When, you know, when uh, Roberto Duran just kind of stopped in mid-fight with uh, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, something to this day we've never gotten quite a satisfaction, a satisfactory answer to. People were not only astonished, some were outraged, you know, it was, they just couldn't imagine that that happened. And the same is true when Mike Tyson bit <laughs> veteran field's ear it was you know a pretty shocking um, thing to happen but here's the thing if you think about how people perceive those two those are never the first things that are mentioned either in a story about them or even in a commentary about them and and let, let's juxtapose that to some other athletes let's take somebody like bill buckner who was a great major league baseball player not just a good one a great one for 16 17 18 years he's this far from the hall of fame just a notch and but because bill buckner wasn't a superstar that ground ball that goes through his legs in the world series is the thing people talk about all the time with bill buckner and they sometimes ignore the fact that he was a a a brilliant player so i think superstar status and kind of a cult following uh, and having, uh, you know, that kind of uh, passionate following will sometimes take away the faux pas that you commit. And I would suggest that it has done both for both Tyson and Duran. So I don't think it really ended up hurting either of their legacies. You set me up doing an interview with Jim Gray one time and said, I want you to interview him for the show. And you'll like him. And I asked him, what was the most difficult question you ever asked an athlete? And he didn't skip a beat. And he said, why did you bite his ear off? Yeah. And I'd forgotten that Jim, did the, he had a lot of courage there. Yeah, that, that's a pretty hard question to ask, isn't it? Yeah. Why exactly did, and, and probably a question you never thought you would have to ask, right? So. Did they teach you that in journalism school? No, I don't think any of us learned that in journalism school. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, hold on, uh, your final question. Uh, top rank, this is, comes from Brett Capelli, and Al Top Rank has announced a possible June card in Vegas with Shakur Stevenson most likely headlining in a non-title bout. Do you think that any big fights will happen anytime soon without fans? 
Well, I think they're going to be title fights, like the Jamel Herring fight. They don't have an opponent, I don't think, yet for him. Or Shakur Stevenson, I should say. Jamel Herring also uh, will be probably doing a title fight uh, within the next couple of months. I expect David Benavides, uh, the 168-pound champion, to be defending his title. Uh, and I think, I think that in the next two to three months, we'll see Jose Luis Ramirez, and probably against Victor Postal, maybe, if they can work that travel out. Um, uh, the man he was going to face before uh, we had to, you know, to shut down due to the pandemic. A little later on, I think we will see matches that might be a little bit higher um, echelon in terms of their uh, broad-based appeal of fights like the, um, uh, the fight between Gervonta Davis and Leo Santa Cruz and some other big matches. But for now, for the next couple months, we're going to see championship matches. I think we'll see some really nice undercards with really good, hopefully, hopefully, filled with good fights that people will enjoy. That's very important. Whether they have big stars in them or not, it's important for boxing to come back with fights that are, are competitive uh, and, uh, and down the line so that you get to show two or three of those kind of fights. So we'll see what happens, but I do believe that's going to be the case. Well, we mentioned that one of the people who will be responsible for bringing back that boxing is a gentleman who is the president of Showtime Sports, and uh, I had a chance to chat with him, Mr. Steven Espinoza. Let's listen into that. Steven, uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to visit with us. Uh, you have been one of the people that I think has provided an, a very optimistic voice in the last several weeks about what you see for boxing uh, coming back, and I'm sure that includes Showtime, but, but the, for the sport overall. What is it that's kind of making you uh, optimistic about how the sport's going to return? Um. That, that, that's a, that's an excellent question because, um, you, you know, I, I've talked to, you know, spend more time talking to, to boxing writers now because we all have more time to do, right. you know, a lot of things. Um, and that, that hasn't been the recent history of the sport. I mean, I, I think I've, I've said it in interviews before that, um, that all of us, fans, media, executives, we're, we're pretty hard on, on the sport. True. Um, you know, there's it, it. It's a little bit of a cannibalistic attitude. Mm -hmm. um, but I and I and I think part of that is because of just the speed at which everything moves. Everyone is hyper competitive, and you know things are changing. Um, and there's a lot of shifting ground under people's feet. So what makes me optimistic, I think, most of all, is the fact that we have right now a chance. Um, you know, those of us who are fortunate enough to be healthy, obviously, um, have a chance to catch our breath and slow down from running from one event to another and jumping on planes and things like that. And, you know, in periods like that, uh, in periods of, of not just downtime, but periods of, of stress and rapid change, which is what we're seeing, uh, that's when innovation happens. You know, and, and we've seen it on, on the NBA side. You know, yeah. um, NBA may be pushing their schedule and going to a different time of the year. Um, MLB it may be experimenting with, uh, you know, more postseason teams. Um, so this is the time, I think, 
where people can get really creative and think about, hey, this is a reset button. It's a reset button for how we all approach the sport. And, you know, um, I know you spend a lot of time, you've spent, you know, a lifetime, you know, in and around the sport. So I know when you're not occupied with watching fights and breaking down fights, you, you think about the sport, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, sure. I think, and, and I, you know, in our, in our private calls, you know, in our Showtime group calls, you know, I, I've challenged all of you guys, let's think about what we can do differently. Let's get creative. Sure. And, you know, there's no bad ideas. There's no crazy ideas because we know when it comes back, it is going to look different. So let's try, let's, let's experiment. Let's, let's try things at this point because we're going to have to do it differently uh, based on the circumstances. And I got the feeling from your comments recently that you're, some of the optimism that you feel, that's an interesting point, by the way, that you, you can be more creative when everyone's allowed to slow down and reflect, which you don't always have a chance to do when you're in the rat race and trying to, trying to get things done. Right. Um, the other thing that you've kind of alluded to is that you think we're likely to see, I think you called it a wild ride when we come back, and, and your point was that you're kind of optimistic that really good matches are going to be made. I assume that means overall in boxing and uh, from your standpoint in terms of showtime as well. Um, I think so. I'm, I'm optimistic for the sport. Um, and I've heard from some of the, some of the fighters, um, some of the managers, you know, the promoters, um, everyone's really anxious to get going, um, you know, and that can be said of, of everything. But, you know, the, the boxers are rested, they've been at home, they've healed up nagging injuries. Um, and now I think what, what people want is, is big events. You know, I, I think it's, it's a little anticlimactic if, you know, we say, okay, we're back, we're back, we're back. And it's just, you know, a regular fight or a, a tune-up fight or something. Now, look, not everything's going to be a monster fight. You know, that's just not the nature of the sport. And there are different guys at different points of their career. But, but I do think that, you know, maybe just like we said, this reevaluation can apply to creativity and production. I, I think it can be, you know, to career development as well. I mean, these um, these guys have a limited a limited time to perform in this sport, uh, and I know everybody's anxious. So I don't think people are going to sit around for several months saying, "Okay, okay, now that we're back, you know, I really want a couple of tune-up fights." Um, that's just not the nature of of the the fighters that we work with. That's a good point because the, everyone's biological clock is always ticking, and now it's ticking faster because people lost months and months and months. Uh, additionally of time uh, if you're a fighter. Now, pay-per-view is an interesting question. It's not, doesn't dominate boxing. It's only a portion of it. But uh, we saw that the uh, UFC come back with a pay-per-view that apparently by all odds did a a large number of sales. One of the questions I guess I was having, and I don't know if that's a conclusive answer to it, is whether uh, people will have enough uh, residual funds to uh, to buy pay-per-views, uh, and one of the and pay-per-views are definitely part of what might happen in 2020. Uh, there's, for instance, there's there's talk about Gervonta Davis and Leo Santa Cruz, a fight that is very likely and would likely be on Showtime pay-per-view. Um, do you think 
the the number one they the uh, UFC success it shows us that the um, uh, the pay per view is feasible. And how feasible do you think it is? You know, pay per view um, does entail all the the consideration factors you just outlined, um, and it, it it would be uh, silly not to take into account the fact that you know. Uh, there's you know at least 30 to 35 million people who are unemployed right now and a lot more who are not secure about their future and might have had pay reductions um, and just demographically um, a large portion of those are, are, are probably boxing fans um, you know there's no reason to think that they're not so yeah I, I think what we do have to do is um, is proceed in uh, in, in sort of in accordance with what the environment is and and you know what does that mean does that mean no pay-per-views at all well i'm not sure or i'm, I'm you know i'm fairly sure actually that tank and leo could happen without pay-per-view um you know it, it just is it's it's an expensive fight when you have two guys who are well paid at the top of the card it just you know that's one of the realities so yes there, there is a risk and you know, and it's not just sort of the the unemployment financial uh, security issues. I mean, one of the ways that you know people sort of justify the cost is they, they have people over. You know, you know, one guy brings beer. You know, someone else orders the pizza. You know, one guy orders the pay per view. And you know, at the end of the night, you know, everyone has ordered chipped in. And by the way, you had ten or twelve people over to the house. Um, you know, depending where we are in the fall, nobody knows, but. You know, right now there's not a lot of big pay-per-view parties going on. You know, in yeah, some states, sure. yes. Um, California, Nevada, um, California. You know, sort of iffy right now, uh, depending on where you live. So it it has to be done carefully. Uh, uh, but I, I do think look, there's it's gonna it's gonna be difficult to have a you know a really huge pay-per-view. Um, it, it is because. You know, there's going to be a ceiling on the amount of success you can have when people are uncomfortable financially. Um, so the question is, do you, you know, do a fight like Tank and Leo, um, you know, pay-per-view so that it can happen sooner? Do you wait for the economy to pick up? And who knows when that's going to happen? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a really tough choice. Yeah, it's interesting. Will some boxers and some networks and some promoters have to alter their uh, economic model a little bit to, for the benefit of the sport? Is there a way to do that? Do you sense that there could be enough uh, uh, teamwork to make that happen so that we make sure we get good matches for fans? Um, well, I think there's going to be a lot of economic changes, uh, to be honest. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, every fight is going to be impacted by the absence of crowds, which looks like you right. know, where, where we're going to be operating for, for several months at least. Um, so, you know, in, um, in that regard, you know, the, the people who are really getting squeezed the most um, are, are the, the smaller and, and mid-sized promoters, you know, and, and, and the difficulty is when, you know, not, there's a lot of boxing on TV. We've talked about that. Um, but there's a lot of shows that are not televised and that is where a lot of the developmental work on young fighters goes and if there's no tv and there's no gate revenue 
those shows aren't going to happen. There, there, there is no revenue there, you know, whatsoever. So yeah, if you've got um, a Showtime Championship event, you know, there's some revenue coming in from a license fee, and even if you don't have the gate, there, there's still a pie that can be cut up. But the real question, and I think we we need to do this. I mean, someone something like you know Showbox um, continues to be really important, you know, for the development of the sport in shows of that that caliber, because without crowds, um, you know, I think there's a real challenge in terms of fighter development. Yeah, that's for sure. That's what makes it murky in terms of coming back. Now, you came to Showtime Sports in 2011 uh, to take over the helm of, uh, of, of the Showtime Sports division. And you came from a world of uh, client representation, and you had been the, uh, the lead counsel for Golden Boy Promotions, and you had represented a lot of boxers, and you had a lot of sports ties in addition to your entertainment mm -hmm. ties. Um, what was the hardest part of that transition, coming from that world to running a sports enterprise? Uh, great question. There's, um, I, I would say the most difficult was also the most uh, rewarding. Mm. Um, and, and as a lawyer, uh, an entertainment lawyer, you're used to seeing one, one segment of right. an event. You know, by doing actor deal, you know, you know, I probably haven't read the script. Maybe I have. And then, you know, I do the actor deal. You know, the, the client goes off and films a movie. And nine months later, a year later, I get invited to a premiere. Um, if we, you know, sell a book, you know, I'm representing a book author that gets made into a movie. I, you know, we sell the book to a studio, you know, might not hear about it for five years, you know. And then, but in the meantime, things are, scripts are being written and, and then we'll say, um, here, you know, this process is the first time in my career I've been involved from start to finish, from the idea of an event all the way through the execution. So in some sense, having one sliver of this limited role makes things a lot simpler. You mm -hmm. know, I don't have to worry about the film going over budget or shutting down because of coronavirus or other things. I need to make sure my client gets his deal done and he gets paid. Um, you know, in, in, in boxing, you're, 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 babysitting the entire process, which is a challenge. But then again, when you walk into the arena on fight night or you know, it's just about to be the walkout and you see you know, the crowd on their feet and, and this adrenaline in the air, that's when you realize um, this was all worth it. All, all, the, all the headaches and all the late nights are worth it. Yeah, and you, you came into the, even though your position at Showtime involves other sports programming as well. The boxing is kind of the, the, the most uh, high profile uh, of Showtime's uh, sports offerings. And you came into it as a true boxing fan. You've always loved boxing. Um, how much of an attribute or, or how much did that help you that you, you, didn't, you weren't a television guy or a representative all of a sudden now helming uh, a network that does a lot of boxing? you were a boxing fan who now got to think about all the things you've always wanted when you watch televised boxing. You know, I, I think it would be very difficult to do this job um, without really having a, a passion for the sport. Uh, it, it, you know, I'm not saying it can't be done and I'm not yeah. casting aspersions on anyone, but 
you know, there's, um, there's a lot of frustrating days, a lot of frustrating interactions, there's a lot of disorganization. Um, and so if you, if you don't love it, uh, I think you get burned out pretty quick. Yeah. Um, and you, you look at guys, and, and often, you know, like, a, you know, not to pick on him, but, you know, we all, we all know and love him. I mean, a guy like Lou, Lou DiBella, you know, Lou gets as frustrated as anybody and as angry as anybody, but you know you where it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he, he comes from a, a place of passion for yeah. the sport and love for the sport. Sure. So, you know, in order to enjoy this position, I mean, you know, I think you have to, you have to like boxing. Um, it, it, it would be too painful anyway, uh, otherwise. Yeah, no, it's, that's a very good point. That really is a good point. Now, you, we have a very diverse group at, uh, um, at Showtime. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I laugh because we, it is truly a range of personalities. I mean, you know, uh, you really if, if people only knew what, what goes on beyond the scenes. Yeah, and, and, and as people as different as you could possibly imagine who all bring different experiences I always joke that people sometimes are either senators or governors in life. Like I used to be a governor back when I was a newspaper editor and I ran people. Then I became a senator when I got to be more just a sportscaster because now I'm just basically, it's like you're like a gunslinger running through the, the old west. You, you stop in this town, you do something, you stop in that town. You're not running a, a group. You kind of became a governor after an earlier job in which mm -hmm. you were more of a senator where you're doing these individual jobs. So it's, a, to, it's a good point. Yeah, you have to kind of run this eclectic group of people. Um, uh, it, does it help that we have a pretty interesting group overall? I think my background really um, helped me prepare for it because, um, you know, I probably had, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 clients at a time. And they're all different and they all like to be communicated to differently. And they all have different habits and, and different idiosyncrasies, as we all do. Um, so there are very few, you know, rarely do you talk to two clients and handle two clients the same way. Um, and, and I think right, that yeah. has prepared me well. Yeah. So, you know, with, with you guys, I mean, um, you know, the, the way I communicate with Moro is slightly different than from you, than from Polly, and, you know, uh, as well as all the groups of people that we we talk with it's just all the people behind the camera as well yes so and and that's what i think one of the underappreciated team uh, things is is that you know people on the tv production side um view themselves almost like athletes themselves in a way you know we are a team we are coming out to perform we are our goal is to have right. the, the you know a, a, a superb performance and we're all there sort of adrenaline rushing in the heat of the moment and, you know, have to sort of execute and deliver when it counts. Um, and there's a, there's a sense of camaraderie and bonding when you bring all these different people from different parts of the country come together to do something fun and interesting and, and hopefully enjoyable for the audience for three or four hours. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It is intriguing because everybody descends on this spot, uh, some from the office of Showtime, some from other places. And, and the goal is to ultimately reach the goal of putting on a good show. Now, one of the things that, uh, so in our eclectic group, one of the things that a number of people have in common, uh, you are 
along with Mauro and Polly and uh, Brian uh, and probably a few other folks on the show, it, quite the devotee of hip hop music. And and you guys always discuss it. <laughs> I hadn't, and I hadn't, you, I hadn't thought of it yeah. yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're very into it. And so ironically, it's the one genre of music that I don't know that much about, but I like to listen to you guys and learn <laughs> from you. Um, what is it, what speaks <laughs> you about that music and how did you get to be, because you're more than just a casual fan of it. You are very, very into it. What was it that made hip hop speak to you? Um, I think it was, um, you know, I think it was, you know, going through the teenage years when, when that new, you know, new form of music mm -hmm. was, was becoming, you know, more popular. I mean, the roots are well before the mid eighties, but the mid eighties is sort of when you know, people started to, you know, early to mid eighties is when it, it sort of became really took root and started to spread. You know, and as a young teenager, I saw myself maturing uh, with the music. It just, you know, and and, and sure, as a 15-year-old, it didn't hurt that, um, you know, parents didn't like it and people didn't know <laughs> it's what almost to do mandatory, with it. That's almost mandatory, isn't it? That, uh, yeah. Sort of, right. Yeah. It, it, the same thing that, you know, made every teenager, you know, love rock and roll when it first right. started. Um, and then... Um, you know, and, and then probably what, what, where it sort of cemented is when I, when I got to college, um, when I was Stanford, I used to, uh, I was working at the radio station, um, you know, doing um, in, in the sports department and they needed somebody, uh, you know, it always happens. It's a student run station and things come up. They need somebody to fill in one of the slots, um, not during a sporting event, but you know, when they were doing music. Um, so I started doing a hip hop show at that point, uh, college radio. Um, and that's something I did, you know, all four years of college. Um, and it was a really exciting time in, in, uh, in hip hop at that point. So that, that sort of cemented my love affair, I think. Did you, you know, I ever asked you this, did you represent some hip hop artists when you were in the uh, representation world? Um, I, yeah, I, I did. I worked with, um, with the, probably the, the two biggest, uh, did a lot of work with Snoop, um, okay. you know, a lot of stuff, and, and Eminem um, on, on the acting side. I, you know, it wasn't a music attorney, but, um, you know, it was involved in his eight mile deal and, and oh, some okay. of the stuff that happened after that. Well, that was a big, yeah, that certainly was important. Well, I wanted to, you know, I like to, when, when I have people on, I love to get a chance to, if people understand or know something about them that they wouldn't know. And I think that's something probably most people would, if they're aware no, of you've done a good job, right. what you do, they, they probably don't know that. Right. Now, now can I, can I share all the, the secrets of, uh, of, of all of you guys? Can we, exactly. about, uh, you know, about uh, Polly's habits at the buffet or, or, or Morris <laughs> culture knowledge, you know, and any of those things we can start, right? Yeah, we have, we have, we are an interesting yeah. group, and, and it no, is. Yeah, yeah, those are family yeah. secrets. Yeah, we'll leave them as family secrets for now. Huh? I'm sorry? 
We'll leave them as family secrets, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let, let's just suffice the, the genre of music that they like, and we'll leave the right. rest. There we go. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> they might not speak to me again if I bring up too many. You, you're the boss, so they have to talk to you, but I, I could be in... I could be a big trouble. Stephen, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Um, I, I, in closing this, um, I know we are getting close to, to uh, getting back going. What, do you, what message do you have for the Showtime boxing fans about the immediate future and what's coming up? Well, I, you know, I am excited about... Um, what's going to happen when we come out, whenever that is. Uh, we've got a, a target date. We're, we're hoping for July. Um, and I think it's going to look somewhat different. We're going to try some things. Um, some things, you know, will work, hopefully. You know, I'm sure a couple ideas might not. But that's, uh, that's sort of the phase that we're in. And um, look, I'm, I'm excited for the sport. Um, I, you know, all of us want it back, you know, as bad as, as anyone. Um, but, you know, the real challenge here is with a group as large as ours, you know, on the production side, Showtime employees, freelancers, on-air commentators, all the stuff that we're responsible for, um, as well as, you know, on the fighter and promoter side, is, you know, before I ask you and your colleagues and other Showtime employees and everybody, you know, to come into this environment, um, I, I want to know that we have done everything we can to make this as safe as possible. Um, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to eliminate all risk. Um, and it's easy to say, well, you know, it's, it's not that bad. Um, but the reality is, um, yeah, um, it, in many cases, it's, uh, it, you know, coronavirus can be mild. But I think thinking about all of us on the team, you know, you don't have to go very far. Uh, to find a loved one that is relatively high risk, yeah. whether, um, you know, a spouse or you're, you're taking care of your parents or things yeah. like that. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a responsibility. And as much as I, I want to get back, um, we want to do this in a way that a is as safe as we can make it and B gives the fighters an opportunity uh, to prepare because right now, you know, we're, in this trend where a lot of states are reopening, uh, the majority of states in, in some ways. Uh, but if we got a full green light right now, that still doesn't mean fights in June. Not if we're gonna give fighters um, you know, a full opportunity to have a training camp. Because if, if you were in California or Texas, you know, before say a week ago, technically you weren't allowed to go to the gym. So, I, I think July is the combination of, you know, figuring out safety protocols and giving fighters the best opportunity to prepare and get, get ready to go. All right. Well, we're, we're looking forward to the return and looking forward to a, um, a brisk schedule of uh, Showtime fights after that. And we're hopeful that the sport in general uh, comes back soon. Hey, Stephen, thanks great. very much for uh, taking the time to do this. No, great to see you, Al. All right. You take care. All right. So that was my chat with uh, Stephen Espinoza. And um, as you can tell, Trip, he's a guy that uh, is thoughtful uh, and uh, it, very intense about the job he holds. And, uh, and it's interesting to be around him because those are the kinds of 
discussions that you can get into with him, even at big dinners where we're all together. Mostly it's a lot of laughs and we have some fun, but there's also conversations like that that take place. Well, and how important has boxing been to Showtime? I've read some things saying it's one of the big reasons why Showtime has gotten to the heights they've gotten to. Yeah, you know, listen, there was a long period where the, for the premium channels, HBO and Showtime, it was the place where boxing was mostly seen. And it, would, and it certainly has been very important. Now, in the last couple of years, other platforms have come to play. And some people question how important boxing is to premium channels. HBO stopped doing boxing. But Showtime has always had its subscribers say to them, we like boxing. And they're still doing it. And that's why Showtime is still doing boxing. And it will continue to do boxing as long as that's the case. All right, we have questions. Okay, we've got a good one here. And I, I love this one, having done some fights with you. When calling fights, uh, do you use the monitors or do you watch the action in the ring? Uh, following up to that, do you believe it would be good for judges to benefit from having monitors? I always see them struggling to see what's going on in the ring due to obstruction. Question. Yeah, intriguing. I started out watching the ring back 40 years ago, uh, you know, when I was 10. Uh, and and um, that was the case for a little while. And... Then I grav started gravitating to watching the monitor because that's what people were seeing at home. And from doing about originally maybe five to 10% off the monitor, I kept that, that figure kept increasing and increasing. And I'm gonna say about 15 or 20 years ago, it got to 100%. Um, I, I, I have barely looked at a, <laughs> this is the weird part, right? I've been sitting at some of the greatest events in boxing history even in the last 20 or 25 years, except for certain times in between fights, I have barely looked at the ring, which is bizarre, right? I mean, it's kind of crazy, uh, but it, I've found that it is a better way to look at it. Now, that leads us to the second part of this question. Some people would find it to be heresy to suggest that uh, judges should look at monitors. After all, they're ringside, and we and there is this thought that you can't tell how hard punches are, how much are they impacting if you don't look at them in real time and real in real life. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not willing to say here, oh, definitely, an, an, a judges should be looking at monitors, but I don't think it would hurt because you are always getting a good view of the fight. Uh, better view, I think, than you are if you're just looking through one portion of the rope. So it wouldn't, sh it wouldn't be uh, offensive to me if the judges used monitors. I don't know that that'll ever happen, uh, but um, who knows? It's possible. Well, if you look at instant replay in football, special with, yeah. you know, super high def, you can see things that you couldn't otherwise. Yeah, but true. You're opening a can of fish when you do that, however. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if the boxing, which is a very traditional sport, would go that route. Okay. And this comes from Dustin Cushion. Al, has there ever been a moment while calling a fight, in the heat of the moment, you said something you immediately regretted? If so, what was the fight and what did you say? And by yeah, the way, he loves I, well, the show. I've made a couple of factual errors that, you know, I haven't, I, I, I kind of, I went through my brain to try and scan, you know, many, many fights. 
to see if there was, if I could really remember, I'm sure there have been things that I've said in the heat of the moment that I wished I could get back, that I didn't phrase quite the right way, or, or I, I, maybe I was too emotional or not emotional enough, or I, I, didn't, uh, I, I didn't zero in. Those things, it's hard to, to, to call back. But the things that you did that were not factual, those are the things that trouble you and, and keep you up at night. And I committed a terrible faux pas not that long into my career and on the biggest stage of my life. And we were talking earlier about people being penalized for mistakes or whatever. And sometimes you're a Teflon man and sometimes you're not. Well, on the Hagler-Hearn site, on that fight, afterwards, I was thinking to myself, because I had done the Hagler-Duran fight, and some people thought Hagler underperformed in that fight. And I wanted to say that Mar if, if Marvin Hagler needed to, ha if there was any doubts about Marvel Hagler, Marvin Hagler underperforming in his fight with Roberto Duran, he has put that to rest now. Instead, I said, if there was any doubt about Marvin Hagler after his loss to Roberto Duran, they are, those questions are answered now. Of course, he did not lose to Roberto Duran. He got the decision. <laughs> and that night, you know, I didn't even realize I had said it really. And I was kind of made aware of it much later. And I really had a hard time sleeping that night. I, I said to myself, how could I have done that? What, you know, but it was a slip of the tongue and it was, I had a certain thing in my mind and that came out. Uh, and, um, and amazingly to this day, I have received very little blowback about it. Every once in a while, someone will joke with me about it or remind me of it. And I cop to it because I, it was a mistake. Um, the other mistake that I made that was funny, um, was one night we were doing a, a Showtime fight from the what was then the Home Home Depot Center in uh, L.A. It's been renamed four or five times. It's the place where the L.A. soccer team plays, and they have this wonderful um, uh, round amphitheater for tennis where lots of boxing is uh, has happened, and it's been a great venue for boxing. And we were doing a fight, and I was supposed to come on and talk. It had been raining that night, but still a lot of fans showed up. I was supposed to talk about uh, the great fans that had come to the Home Depot Center. And Steve Albert and I got on camera, and I said, you know, I said, it's a testimony to the great fans here at the Home Box Office Center. <laughs> Oops. Of course, Home Box Office being our rival in the sport of boxing. And, and Steve Albert, always prepared, turned to me and said, I believe you've had your YouTube moment. I said, yes, I believe <laughs> I have. So that was, those are the two things that I wish I could take back. There are probably a lot more, but those two, uh, those two came to mind. So, you know, at least I'm copying to them now. 40 years later, but hopefully fans of Al Bernstein Unplugged, when they see you, will bring up the Hagler-Hearns fight. Yeah, well, I'm sure they will. Oh, now I'll yeah. probably get a thousand tweets about it. Every once in a while I get some, so what can I say? Um, <laughs> we are so glad you joined us. Uh, my thanks to Tripp, um, of course, for his uh, fine work. Um, and uh, next week we're going to be having uh, Glenn McCrory as our special guest. Glenn is a very a former world champion and a very fine broadcaster in the UK. Uh, and I've been anxious to have a chance to uh, 
to have him as an inter as a guest because he's a terrific broadcaster, great guy, and uh, and he will bring us a lot of interesting stories from across the pond and about boxing in general. Uh, so that should be a that should be a fun episode. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time.